Friends, when Jesus began his kingdom ministry and he invited his disciples to follow him, it's kind of like he invited them to join his team with himself as the head coach. And a team gives you three very important things. Identity, purpose, and motivation. Identity, purpose, motivation. And every team has a unique identity. Uh, that can come from the team name. You might have like, you know, the Bears or the Lions, uh, the Grizzlies or the Warriors. Uh, these kind of all have a unique identity, right? Or maybe the identity comes from the team colors or maybe from even the city where the team plays. Sometimes the city gives that team a kind of unique identity. Um, so there's identity, but the team also has a clear purpose, win. Uh, and then there's also the team has motivation. Uh, and usually, ideally, that's the team's success, though we know individuals also play for their own success as well. But when Jesus calls us into his kingdom, he gives us these same three things, identity, purpose, motivation. And as we continue our sermon series, The World's Greatest Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're going to talk about these three things. Uh, last week, we covered the Beatitudes, um, how God's blessing and favor is on the humble, poor, and oppressed. It's on those who pursue righteousness and justice and those who make for peace. And Jesus is saying, in some effect, that these are the kind of people that are on his team. These are the players that he's inviting to join him on his team. These are the kinds of attitudes and skills he expects from his players. So, he's a, so welcome to the team. And now here's your identity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If Jesus' people are going to be the kind of people who can live out the radical teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and especially in the Beatitudes, the first place that you need to begin is with your identity, your identity. And Jesus is an absolute genius for starting with this. Uh, an author named James Clear, uh, he wrote a book called The Atomic Habits, and he's considered an authority on kind of life change and goals and habits. And he writes about how it's essential to uh, focus on identity-based habits. Identity-based habits. He says that most people, when they're trying to change something, most people focus on outcomes, okay? I want to lose 20 pounds, all right? That's the outcome. That's my goal. Now, Clear says one better would be to focus on the process, okay? I'm going to work out for 15 minutes Monday through Friday. That's my goal. That's one better. That's focusing on the process. And Clear says, really, uh, the step even better than that is to focus on your identity first, and to say, actually, my goal is, I want to be a healthy person. I am a healthy person who makes healthy choices to glorify God. That's my identity. Because if you don't have a healthy identity, then the changes that you make will likely be short-lived. So if we don't get at these deep issues of our self-perception, of our worldview, of how we view others in the world around us, what we believe, what we value, change will be exceedingly difficult. And I think Jesus, he, know this, he knows this about us. He knows the human heart. And so with the Beatitudes, he welcomes the players onto his team, uh, the, poor in, the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, etc. Et and then the first thing he does is he gives them an identity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In some ways, this is the team mascot. It's not the bears or the lions or the cubs. We're team salt and light. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. And his disciples, they have this identity precisely because they're the ones who are on his team. 
As we said at the beginning of this series, this sermon is directed at his disciples, those who were following him, those who want to be on his team. This is their identity. You are salt now. You are light now. And that means you are different. You are different from the world because your identity is what makes you distinct from others. It gets at your uniqueness, what makes you stand out and different. See, salt's flavor stands out from whatever it's put on. Light obviously stands out from the darkness. So how are Jesus' followers to stand out from the world? Well, you could simply say, well, by being like Jesus and obeying Jesus. But especially, I think we should think about the values Jesus just gave in the Beatitudes. And I think if you were to take the opposite values of the Beatitudes, you would get a pretty good idea of the worldly mindset, of the kingdom of the world. The world is not poor in spirit, but those who are, are prideful and generally live independent from God and His Spirit. The world is not those who are mourning over the suffering of others, but are comforted and dulled by their lifestyles. The world is not those who are meek, but angry, selfish, and insistent on their way, and even prone to violence. The world is not hungry for justice, but complacent with the status quo. The world is not merciful, but shuts their eyes to the cries of the needy. The world is not pure in heart, but generally self-centered. The world are not peacemakers, but people avoiders and peace disruptors. The world is not those who are persecuted by the world, but celebrated by the world. Not rejoicing when insulted, but retaliating. It's a pretty good definition of the world right there. The world is a dark place. Its identity, our values are opposite of the kingdom of Jesus. So friends, we shouldn't be surprised when we experience the world as a really dark place. It's a really dark place. But although the world is dark, it doesn't mean that we are powerless, and it doesn't mean that there is no hope. So we should not be complete uh, optimists, but neither should we be total pessimists either. Leslie Newbegin was once asked whether he was an optimist or a pessimist, and he said, neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's the hope. That is what we proclaim. So in a dark world, our focus is on shining the light of Jesus Christ. Come what may. Come what may. So we expect the world to be, to be dark, but we also expect that Jesus is bringing light and through His kingdom people, He is making a difference. So we're not without hope and we're not powerless. But how different are Jesus' followers called to be from the world? I'll give you a scripture from 1 Peter, 1 Peter, Peter 2. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's almost like Peter had been meditating or memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. He nearly quotes Jesus verbatim in this passage. Because Peter, he learned from Jesus. He was Jesus' disciple. And he says that basically says the way that we're different from the world is our good character and our good deeds. And we'll come to the good deeds next. But what Peter says about character is, is so very important. 
He says, abstain from sinful desires. Live such good lives. It's our character, the quality of the kind of people we are. Or as James said, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Or as Paul said, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So as followers of Jesus, we renounce sin. We renounce the flesh, the world, and the devil And we pursue living in the kingdom of Jesus. And Peter says this is a war. This is a battle. This is is a fight to stay different than the world. But it is so essential to our identity in Jesus that we are light, we are salt. Stanley Hauerwas says, the first job of the church is to show the world that they're the world. What he means by that is we are called to be so different that people recognize that they are not like us, that there is something u- unique in s- that we stand out from them and that they are thus drawn to the light. So the ad- this identity of difference, this also is what should attract the world to Jesus. Those with bland food and decaying meat desire salt. To those walking in darkness, a shining light captures the eyes and guides the way. So in some ways, this is the principle of opposites attract, but we don't want them to be attracted to us. We want them to be attracted to who's in us, to Jesus, to the source of our light and our difference. So friends, get this into your identity every day. You are salt, you are light. So that's our, that's our identity. The second thing Jesus gives us on his team is purpose. Teams have a clear goal. Win the game, win the championship, whatever it is. And Jesus' followers also have a clear objective as well. Salt's, ob- salt's objective is to season. Light's objective is to shine. We're to season and shine. Season and shine. That's our goal. Let's talk about the seasoning. Let's talk about salt's purpose. Now, in one commentary, it lists 11 different uses for salt in the time of Jesus. All right, so you can, go, you can go in all kinds of different directions with this. Uh, you know, it's connected to purity, it's connected to sacrifices, it's connected to preserving meats, to flavoring, and more. But really, the main point of both of these metaphors of salt and light is that they make an impact on what's around it. So if you get confused, just remember the main point is about making an impact on what's around it. Whatever salt does, that's the main point. However, it does seem that the flavoring aspect is what's most prominent. It's probably what, we're, what would have related to these Galileans most. And that's what Jesus is kind of saying when he says the salt that loses its saltiness. That's about, it means salt losing its taste, losing its flavor. So salt's objective is to season. Light's objective is obvious, shine. So we're called as Christians to season the world and to shine light in the darkness. But how are we to do that? Jesus makes it clear. He was speaking, as Gene was talking about, figuratively, metaphorically, we are salt and lights. But he gives us the answer in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So you know, I've been uh, studying in my doctorate program 
and the first year has been all about discipleship. I've done a lot of reading on discipleship. I, re- I read a book uh, by A.B. Bruce. He was a Scottish pastor in the late 1800s. And he wrote a very thick book called The Training of the Twelve. And it was the deepest dive on discipleship you'll ever take. Uh, it is a trip if you ever want something difficult to read. Um, but when I thought about the training of the twelve, my, my, my initial assumption was, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, how, the, how Jesus, they walked together, they ate together, they traveled together. It's, you know, he was teaching them the, the secrets of the parables. You know, I'm telling the crowds this, but I'm going to tell you this. So I was thinking about all of this stuff. But what really struck me about how Jesus spent his time was the quantity of time he likely was spending doing good for people. If you want to know what Jesus was up to, he was doing good. That's what he was doing. And that's primarily what he did with the 12. He went, he went with them doing good and taught them how to do it. And I think we're prone to miss this and prone to miss the quantity of how much Jesus did this because the gospel writers, they write summary sentences. You know, for example, even before the Sermon on the Mount, it's like there's this all, the whole region, Sidon and Tyre and the whole, Judea and Galilee, everybody came to him from everywhere. And it says he healed them all. I mean, how many days and weeks and nights and time? And that's just one example. So we have all these summary sentences. He healed them. He blessed them. He taught them. And he attracted crowds and crowds of people. And we know that he always let himself be interrupted by the needs of others. He was filled with compassion. So one of the most essential facts about the life of Jesus is that he went about doing good deeds. That's, what, that's essential. In fact, when, when Peter was recapping the life of Jesus in the book of Acts, when he's, remember he's explaining to Cornelius in his household. Let me put this up on the screen for you. This is Peter speaking again. And he says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. When Peter, who was with Jesus, and he had the chance to tell about his life, he essentially said, this is a guy, he he went around doing good. He went about doing as much good as he possibly could to everybody. And Peter knew this because he was there. He was with Jesus doing that good. So if we want to be, and if we call ourselves followers of this one, of this king, we are also to be those who go around doing good. Just like we talked about in the Beatitudes. We are those who grieve over the suffering and injustice and hurts of others. We show mercy to those who are in need. We are, we are filled with compassion and we make peace wherever we go. And I think we often are prone to miss this going, doing good aspect of discipleship because we're too kind of belief-focused and content-focused in our discipleship. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but discipleship needs to be focused on what we do in the world. This is the, this is the constant theme of the New Testament, friends. I'm not, I'm, not making, I'm not saying anything new or making this up. Paul said in Ephesians 3.10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. That's the Christian life. In fact, you could say that one of the main reasons 
Christians should still get together at all and not just be about doing good. It's so that we can encourage each other to do good. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews basically says this. I think I put this one in the notes too. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Why should Christians gather? To encourage each other to have lives of love and good deeds in the world. To encourage each other to be who we are, salt and light in a dark world. So when we get together, we should ask each other, what good is God giving you the opportunity to do? And how can we support you in doing that? What good is God calling you to do? And how can we as your church support you in doing that? That's at the core of discipleship, of being salt and light. Friends, salt does not flavor itself. Light does not shine on itself. It is for the world. So we're to season and shine on the world by our good deeds. That's our purpose. That's our mission. And Jesus, he gives us a dire warning if we don't fulfill what he's called us to do. And we don't like these moments in Scripture, but this is what he says. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, in that time, most people collected salt from around the Dead Sea. And so it contained other minerals, other deposits of sediment and such, and so that, over time, the sodium chloride, the actual salt, could be dissolved out by the other elements contained therein. And what you could be left with is a saltless rubble, basically saltless dirt. What do you do with that? It's useless. You just, you just throw it out. It's not like they could go to the store and buy more in salt and pour some more in. You know, once the salt is gone, you got to go get more at the Dead Sea. You just, you just throw that stuff out. This is a huge warning to us as followers of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he put it bluntly, the call of Jesus Christ means being salt of the earth or being destroyed. This is the same thing that Jesus said. The vine that doesn't produce fruit is cut off. Saltless salt is pointless. Light that is covered is pointless. Vines with no fruit are cut off. We either live into our calling as followers of Jesus or we face judgment for that. So let me ask you a very important question. Are you in the salt shaker or are you pouring yourself out? Is your light covered or is it shining for all to see? If you are isolated and invisible to the world, you're not fulfilling your purpose as salt and light. In the team metaphor, you're effectively sitting on the bench when Jesus is wanting you to be in the game. We have a purpose. We have to fulfill it. That's what he calls us to do. He's the king. He's the Lord. We obey. Finally, we have identity. We have purpose. We also have motivation. We do these things so that, as Jesus said, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Through what we do, We want people to come to worship the same God that we know. As one commentator puts it, 
When we're salty, people will taste the goodness of God. When we're light, people will see the goodness of God. It's about drawing people to the goodness of God, showing people how great, how good, how awesome, how loving, how amazing God is. We could put it this way. Put this on the screen for you. The church exists for mission, and mission exists for God's glory. We exist, we gather together to to encourage each other to live on mission, and the mission is all about bringing people to glorify God and bring Him glory. That's what Jesus tells us. It's to bring people into a worshipful relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, be careful not to do your good deeds in order to be seen by others. But here, he tells us to do them visibly so that the world will glorify God. Jesus isn't contradicting himself. In this instance, he's talking about the motivation. Why are we doing this? It's to bring glory to God. So the Christians live for God's glory, not for self's glory. Those who play on a sports team, let's be honest, they're probably in it for the, most of them are probably in it for their own glory. As Paul says, to win a crown that will not last. But we do it for a crown that will last forever. And the name on our jersey on the back is not our own name. but The name of Jesus, who we want to bring glory. As covenanter, covenanters say, we live for God's glory and neighbor's good. God's glory, neighbor's good. All the good that we do is out of mercy and love for a broken and hurting world and to bring glory to God that, they, that these people might worship Him too. And friends, never underestimate what God can do with a little good. Never, never underestimate what God can do with just a little bit of good. A little salt, a little light, if you will. I've told you the story about how my youth leader paid my way to camp. And there I trusted in Jesus Christ. I've mentioned the the retiree, Bob Ribby, who mentored me when I was in confirmation. Some of you, I told the story that when I walked through these doors, I, 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 I was in a rush. I almost walked out without saying hi to anybody, but Gene Frost grabbed me, said hi, and we got to know each other. And it's probably for that one little conversation that I am here. One greeting, one hello, one act of love, one act of kindness can be life-altering, eternity-changing, a life-saving act. You never know what God will do with just a small amount of good and love that you show towards another person. It will be more than you could even imagine. So brothers and sisters, welcome to Team Salt and Light. Welcome to the team. Your identity is you are salt and light in this world. Your purpose is to season and to shine. And your motive is to bring God glory in all that you do. So let me close with a quote by John Wesley. Do all the good you can. By all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can.
Amen? For prayer this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to think through what the Lord might be calling you to do. So I'm going to give you this question. What opportunity for good is God calling me into? What opportunity for good is God calling me into? And what do I need to do to start? Can you think about that question? Ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. I'm going to give you about a minute of silence, and then I'll close this in prayer. What opportunity for good is God calling me to do? And what do I need to do to get started? Let's pray.